It's Zach Servideo from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. The world through likes. And you're not going to save the world by just going to Fundraisers, that's important. But this is a one-on-one kind of thing. Yeah. you got to do it a little bit at a time. Change happens one-on-one. Yeah, it really does. Up, one story at a time as we're now live here. At Boston Speaks Up Mobile Studio um, here at uh, Janari Aronson. And I'm here with Larry Janari. Uh, Larry, good to have you. Yeah, thank you, Zach. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, thanks for having me in your your beautiful office here. We're staring out at uh, at, at pretty, Route One Twenty Eight in pretty, the rain. Pretty smooth traffic <laughs> on Route One Twenty Eight today. It's December thirtieth. We only have a couple days left in in twenty nineteen. Um, it's cool to meet, make a uh, a new friend, closing out the decade. Um, but Larry, th- thanks for having us. Um, we'd love to. I want to unpack some of your some of your background and some of the interesting um, things that you're doing for the Boston innovation community. As I've poked around, I've, I've come to find out you're a, you're a beloved lawyer um, for uh, very many in the in the tech and innovation community. Uh, but in beneath that surface, there's a real sort of um, interest in socioeconomic impact. Uh, you're you're an uh, adjunct professor at Boston College. You're working on a new project at BC, Project Entrepreneur, which helps um, first-time entrepreneurs with criminal records, which is amazing. You have work you're doing to help uh, middle schoolers um, gain, um, start getting in front of um, children in middle school. So as they're going to high school, they start to get a better sense of opportunities um, that they may want to pursue sort of um, post high school, which which is great. Um, and then you have Authors and Innovators, which is an interesting um, events program series that seems like you're aspiring to do even more with that I'd love to, to chat about the event for 2020 and, and, and what you have planned there. Um, so thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for having Boston Speaks Up and would love uh, just a brief um, brief background on where we are today, the, the, the firm that you've built um, and just like a little bit of context for listeners and then we'll kind of go back in time a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. So um, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I call myself sort of a business lawyer and we help people become successful, I guess is the way I'd put it. I've been doing this for more than two decades, um, spent much of my career downtown at big law firms and decided now 10 years ago to come out here with some friends and to do it in a different way. And that means a smaller, uh, firm really still focused on helping entrepreneurs become successful either through the basics of getting started up to um, getting sold to getting funded. Uh, but I think largely uh, so many of the things that you mentioned, and thank you for spending a little bit of time thinking about this. Uh, I, I think I don't. I just sort of get up in the morning and do it. It's um, 
it's really all around helping people figure out how to be connected to um, things that will make it happen for them, whether that's people, whether that's money, whether that's ideas. Mm-hmm. All of the things that, that I do, I think, are focused on that core mission of helping people achieve the best of themselves. And that's really what I think entrepreneurialism is all about. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you, we did this pre-podcast um, Q&A and a few of your answers um, I want to kind of to poke into. One is love to um, love to chat about just growing up in Marlboro. Um, you grew up in Marlboro, right? I did. Yeah. I grew up in Marlboro. Which, yeah. uh, did is, I say that right? It, you okay. did. You did. It's, it's very yeah. different now yeah. than it used to be. Marlboro was yeah. historically an industrial town. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm 85. I had a very, um, just a, a wonderful, grew up in a wonderful community, had a great growing up, uh, in part because some of the people were um, really, uh, I think, aspiring to different and better and other things. Um, my folks uh, ended up there, I think, uh, through a combination of things. My grandparents were immigrants. Um, and for more than 300 plus years, the Genaris were stone and brick masons. I never got that gene. I practice law because I can't do anything else. Mm. Uh, Where uh, in Italy? Where Northern Italy. Northern Italy. Northern Italy. So um, for the most part, um, the Genari family, would, they were artisans mm-hmm. uh, for, for many years. And of course, coming here, um, they become part of a working class community. Yeah. Because that's, that's what it's about. Um, when you grow up in a middle class home, it's about um, having an equal chance to uh, provide for your family mm-hmm. and hope that uh, their lives are different and better uh, than yours. Yeah. Uh, and that's what did, we're all doing with right, it for our kids. Right on. Did, did you go to Marlboro High? I did. What year, what, when was that? So I graduated in 82, and I had the uh, the thrill of taking my son, who's now um, SAT mm-hmm. uh, age, yeah. uh, over there to uh, to take the SATs a few weeks ago. So it's kind so, of a, a revisiting. Interesting. So I have a, a funny connection to Marlboro. Um, I, w- I grew up in Methuen. Ah, the okay. same exact human that designed Methuen High School designed Marlboro ah, High School. I'm not so the big open yeah. concept yeah. that got pitched Still back there. in like the 60s, 70s. Yep. And like over the years, like the state has mandated some walls yeah. be added. Um, yeah. But we, I went and played a high school basketball game in Marlboro. Ah, so you know. And it was like going in the, like a, the yeah. Seinfeld episode, it's, Bizarro World. It wears It was well. like the same. Yeah. yeah. It, it was like, well. oh, wow, this is just like. 78, I think it got built. Yeah. yeah. So it was, I knew it was like the 70s. Yeah. Uh, so it was before. Yeah. So it was like just in time for you to. Ah, now school. that I know that. Wow. Methuen's the same way. Methuen's okay. the same way. And yeah. then did you got, you guys also, cause you had the same exact field house with the blue. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's that it's same concept from the Brady Bunch. Mike yeah. Brady would consistently design the yeah. same house yeah. over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. That, that oh, that's it. fun. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned also that you've always been interested in really pursuing a career in law. Yeah. How early do you remember that interest? You know, I th- I think you develop. Um, I developed it through just the, the things I gravitated towards. Uh, boy, as a as a student, it was social studies, it was history, it was writing. But for the most part, it was about those activities that involve um, uh, group achievement rather than just individual achievement. That's yeah. always been interesting to me. As a as a we, we talked about this pre podcast sort of yeah. as a middle child. You yeah. Can, you're the, you're the problem solver and you never get enough attention. It's mm-hmm. not possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that uh, probably so many of us as lawyers were middle children. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> for that reason, you try to uh, try to play the diplomat, and you try to um, try to listen intently as, as best you can yeah. to many sides and solve uh, help to solve problems. So I think that's I'm I'm where I should be. Um, my undergrad degree was in accounting, and I liked it, but I think I always knew that um, there were yeah. parts of accounting, for example, auditing. That yeah. I thought was really cool and interesting, but that's probably because there was case law involved. Yeah, uh, it had implications beyond just the the numbers. Right. Uh, although I still say people, accounting is a great way uh, to accounting is a language. Yeah, and I do think the the best that we can is the, the best we can do certainly as college students um, then and now mm. is um, learn a language. Whether it's journalism, whether it's accounting, whether it's an actual language, so you can speak with other people. Yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I've no, we've had a couple folks on the podcast that are teaching sort of like basic accounting and just um, financial literacy right. to teenagers. One of them is actually my cousin from from Winthrop, JP Servideo, who didn't he didn't even go to college, and he discovered all this incredible finance knowledge working for. Um, Than Merrill, who's original, mm -hmm. like flip this house um, group that they're out in San Diego now. They have a company called Fortune Builders, and he, he gained all this knowledge. And he was like, "Damn, no, basic like building, you know, and also just things like building credit and like um, so know, managing important. savings so and compound yeah. interest, right? Just basic stuff." Um, and so now he's made he's created future Fortune Builders. He goes into um, he goes into uh, to high schools. And he also goes to countries. He just did a tour through Africa. He's been in Jamaica a couple of wow. times. And he's just teaching Powerful financial stuff, literacy to yeah. 13, 14, 15 year olds. It's like, hey, you can be from any economic background, right? And if you can get your, if you can work hard and get your hands on a little bit of money, that you can make smart, prudent decisions and you can compound that money over time. If you do it when you're young, you'll be good. Uh, just very, just optimistic sort of, um, you know, novel, you know, like not too novel a way to go at it, but they just don't, it doesn't get taught enough sort of in, in a, public education. It's a life skill. You know, there's a book a few years ago and I just love the title, how to be a person in the world. And, uh, um, that's got to rank up there with yeah. some of the skills, uh, yeah. that, that you need to be a person in the world. Yeah. So let's fast forward through to, you went to accounting undergrad, then where'd you go to law school? I went to law school at William and Mary, um, in Virginia, and I think that counts for a lot in my story. Mm -hmm. William & Mary is uniquely positioned. It's the oldest law school in the country. Yeah. Um, and the ethos at William & Mary um, that continues to this day is uh, the goal is to create citizen lawyers. The idea is we all want to be great lawyers, but you also have to be role models too, and you have to be great citizens. And that the role of being a lawyer uh, and all these years later, I still I get excited about it. I still consider it a privilege and, and, and it is a calling is to help. I mean, certainly you can make a living, but along the way, you have an obligation uh, to make life uh, better for the people around you. And that is something that I found was unique to William & Mary and still, I think, um, uh, it, it, it is taught there and inculcated there. Uh, BC has a great model as well. Um, be men and women for others, which I think is really important. And so this is perhaps uh, just a different version of that. Uh, but when you think about it, lawyers, I was always taught, certainly at William & Mary, that we, we occupy a unique position as lawyers. It's a privilege. It's a calling. Um, 
you have one branch of government that's entirely lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. have um, uh, you have to uh, qualify in a special way. In a lot of ways, uh, all of the states provide, frankly, barriers to entry um, for a reason that you are supposed to, as a lawyer, uh, work to help those in your community, uh, regardless of whether you're a corporate lawyer or a litigator or anything like that. I think your job is is to be part of the fabric, part of the community, and to um, and to pay it forward to others. So that's mm -hmm. the uh, uh, the long and short of sort of being a citizen lawyer. But I think it um, it had a tremendous impact on how I think about the practice of law, and still does. Yeah. So very purpose driven mindset. But miss a bit of it, it sort of instilling in you and others um, at William and Mary being very purposeful and intentional and in, in thinking of the impact vis-a-vis -vis, you know positive impact on your on your fellow citizens in your practice of law it, it's it's an obligation yeah it's a yeah. calling and uh, it's a uh, it's a unique position in mm -hmm. society still is yeah uh, we certainly get a yeah. bad rap much yeah. of it well deserved yeah but I do think uh, it's one of the reasons I continue to teach uh, at Boston College Law School, and it's one of the reasons that I get up every morning because I, um, I'm pretty jazzed about what I do, yeah, and really feel like um, there's more to do. That's yeah. the greatest challenge that yeah. I feel uh, that the, this work will never be done. Yeah, uh, that's important. Yeah, great. So when you finished up at William and Mary, did you kind of launch into a career in Boston at that I point? I did. I started my career at Ropes and Gray, um, one of Boston's. Um, most well-known firm, probably the largest, one of the largest in the world, got a great uh, base of experience there, met wonderful people, many of whom are still there. It is a great place to train. I think it didn't speak to the kind of things that I wanted to do um, as a corporate lawyer. Mm -hmm. I started sort of in litigation, and then I moved to be a cor corporate lawyer. I was a pretty unremarkable associate, I would say, in part because I was learning. And in about uh, the third year I was there, I got a call out of the blue from a fellow named Dennis O'Connor, uh, who turned out to be probably the most important mentor I would have in my professional career. And Dennis had left a large firm and started a firm out in um, Waltham along Route 128 called O'Connor, Brody, and Aronson. Uh, not current Aronson. Uh, Neil is uh, my dear friend and business partner. Uh, here. And uh, Dennis's focus was on uh, first-time entrepreneurs. And it was at a time when you could do everything from merger and acquisition work to public offering work. You could do a smaller public offering. Mm -hmm. And so the firm grew when I got there. I think we were nine lawyers. firm got, grew to 17-plus lawyers. Mm -hmm. And um, and our, our client base was a lot like the client base here at Gennari Aronson. I describe it uh, sort of akin to the Red Sox organization. You had major leaguers, AAA, AA, and single folks at all different yeah. uh, uh, levels and needs. And uh, he retired, the firm disbanded, and so many of us went back downtown. Yeah. But I think a number of us, Neil and myself, yeah. kept communicating and saying, gee, why don't put the band back together? So when he was at Mintz and I was at Choate, another big firm, mm -hmm. We finally said, you know, it's um, the end of 2008, mm -hmm. 2009, mm -hmm. the sort of the, the trough mm. of that yeah. What could possibly go wrong, right? Yeah. But I knew, yeah. uh, having been out here, that it, could, it would only go up. Yeah. And I knew that a smaller environment would work better 
for a whole host of reasons for our clients. And I also felt as if part of what I was telling my students at BC Law was not as true for me then uh, as, it, as it became out here. And that is to stand up for young lawyers and to try to uh, present this concept of the citizen lawyer and say, your job is to help people be successful. Yeah. Is at times hard to reconcile with the larger firms when it's when the metrics are appropriate yeah. for a larger firm yeah. about billable hours. Yeah. To the extent that you take on um, early stage clients, you can they have to be set off and considered special. Um, pejoratively, I think sometimes they're created they're treated as lead gen uh, mm-hmm. and clients that aren't treated as seriously as they mm-hmm. should be. So instead of continuing on that path of doing kind of deferral programs that I didn't quite believe in. Um, came out here, and it's been uh, and it's been ten years. And along the way, I've been able to continue teaching at BC yeah. Law, and also to launch some of these other kind of creative uh, uh, endeavors, like authors and innovators, those kind of things that yeah. really, I think, go to the heart of connecting people to dollars and cents, other people, and ideas. Yeah, which is the key to being um, a good guide if you will, yeah. in the entrepreneurial space. Yeah, that's interesting. So you were involved that and you were involved in one of the first really law. That was the first law firm really supporting 128. One of the first. Yeah. He was Dennis O'Connor was a true uh, visionary, a very thoughtful man and, and saw that you could um, you could help people with an idea um, find dollars of mm-hmm. find connections mm-hmm. and find success, mm. which he did. And of course, um, when you do that for one or two clients, when you're sitting in a conference room like this one, and then a year or two later, there were 30 employees around the table and you're helping people yep. pay for childcare, pay their mortgage yep. and think about something, um, a greater cause other than themselves. That's pretty powerful stuff. You yearn for more of that. Yeah. yeah similar. Yeah. I, re- I remember working with much bigger companies, consulting in my early days, and then just gravitating towards startups because the first couple I helped that went from seven employees to yeah, 30. So you and get it. Seven, yeah. some, one right now we work with it went from seven to over 200. Wow. It's just the, it's, it's an amazing, to, it's an amazing, um, sen- you, it's an amazing sense of pride to, yeah, to play to, a role, but it's, yep. it's, um, yeah, it's it, it's neat to participate yeah. in innovation and growth, but then also do it mindfully and try to help share what you've learned back, right? Uh, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you share, at, you know, as a teach, uh, you know, as as a as an adjunct professor at BC. Uh, so let's start there. And how long have you been doing that? Yeah, I've been and, doing. Yeah. I've been doing that a long time. Zach. Yeah, uh, almost twenty years. And I started. I started by teaching um, mergers and acquisitions. I mm-hmm. got a call from a dear friend on the faculty, Ingrid Hillinger, who was one of my favorite professors at William & Mary, who ended up there you at go. BC Law School. There's the William & Mary connect. And so she said, you need to do this. And at the time, um, I was teaching junior achievement at Marlboro okay. High School. So I was driving from my work to Marlboro for, uh, I think it was Wednesday mornings, and I was teaching sophomores. And I said, I don't know how I could teach law students. I'm teaching sophomores about the stock market. And she said, ah. You can do that. You can teach law students. And so I uh, took a couple of days off from work, created a course really from scratch, the kind of course I wanted it to be. So you sort of, you're given 26 classes over a semester. What do you want to cover? How do you want to cover it? Yeah. And I decided to cover it from a perspective of 
uh, early stage entrepreneur, yeah. getting funded, going all the way through, and then getting sold. And full journey. And I said it's got to be a legitimate course. I don't want to be one of those snoozer kind of courses that yeah. teaches that we're yeah. fine if it fits your schedule. But I want to teach at seven thirty yeah. in the morning. Yeah. To nine, two mornings a week, and yeah. I want to have a four-hour closed book exam. So yeah. I wanted it to be the. I wanted it to really represent uh, the best of intellectual rigor um, that I found at William yeah. Mary. So you always pattern that after your favorite teachers. Yeah. And so I taught that, had a ball doing it. Then I was asked uh, BC Law to teach also corporate finance. So I did those courses back to back for a number of years, almost a decade. And then I added a separate course with another faculty member there called Advising the Entrepreneur. And that was really an advanced corporate level course to, um, to help students, third year law students, understand what it was to counsel from a business perspective, a client. And so I did that for a number of years. And then I took a few years as I was teaching uh, these various courses. Uh, in fact, I was teaching a bunch of courses. When we started the firm, I think I was back-to-back uh, -back teaching one or two. I was teaching both semesters, sometimes those courses, and decided I couldn't do all of that. So I just stuck with the one. But I always had in my head that I wanted to teach this other course. This um, uh, I'd always had an interest in criminal law, social justice. And I did a ton of research, including visiting people who worked at prisons. The idea being, I'm a hammer, it's got to be a nail, right? Yeah. I can help anybody become an entrepreneur. Yeah. And <clears throat> what I found um, helping, um, I think, think through it was I visited folks who said, um, you could teach in the prisons, um, but understand that there are limits around that, pedagogical limits. So. Um, it has to be scheduled. Um, all your handouts have to be pre-screened. People can't generally use pens and pencils and the like without having to even back at the end. So that didn't feel right. And then I thought, well, maybe I could explore doing it outside of the prisons. Yeah. Uh, I met with the Mass Probation Department, a wonderful group of incredibly dedicated people. And then I thought, well, this would be great if it could be a component of um, somebody's re-entry. And then I found Project, Entre Project Remade at Stanford. So Project Remade at Stanford mm -hmm. is a well-established program around re-entry. I okay. talked to the uh, executive director there, who was incredibly helpful, and said, how do I take all the information I've learned and kind of craft a course? So I put a proposal uh, together for a three-credit advanced corporate law course uh, to uh, Dean Rougeau at uh, BC Law School. And he liked it. He said, How, let, let's get this done. And so at first I thought, um, well, let me figure out how I'm going to find folks who are returning citizens. And it turns yeah. out that there's an incredibly dedicated community of people who want to help these vulnerable entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I've developed a great rapport and relationship with the chaplain, Sister Maureen Clark, out at MCI Framingham, who's an amazing person and um, quite inspiring in her work. Long-time dedicated work. Kevin Sibley at the Mayor's Office of Returning Citizens. Mm -hmm. And then I started to get calls from folks who were, for example, parole officers who might have a degree from BC. who would huh. heard about it from other folks. Yeah. So um, word got around. Yeah. And so we did one cohort of it. We had nine returning citizens um, in the uh, early stage of this year. And then this past this semester, um, we did another round of it. And so... The idea is a 10-week course, yep. so it's really two courses in one. So the law students come every Wednesday morning and they learn about 
choice of entity, intellectual property, financing, all mm-hmm. of the things that you want your entrepreneurial lawyer to know. Mm-hmm. And then Monday nights, 10 Monday nights, um, there's a separate course on topics like choice of entity, accounting, social media, presenting your story. And it culminates in a pitch session mm. at the end of 10 weeks mm. where I always joke that tell people think about think of it like Shark Tank, except it's Dolphin Tank. Everyone there wants to yeah. help. Yeah. And uh, this last one, we had something like 85 people who came and listened to eight presentations from uh, returning citizens. And I think um, it was incredibly important, um, one, to get this launched and two, to get people through it, um, but also three, to help other members of the community have an opportunity to connect to uh, these returning citizen entrepreneurs. And so on Monday nights, they come and they are not defined by the worst thing that they've ever done. They are defined as an entrepreneur. They have a business idea. And so a lot of the conversations around that are the same kind of conversations you'd have with any entrepreneur. Tell me about the size of the market, logic yeah. and soundness of the revenue model, management, competition, all of those things. And let's see what we can do to help. And so I started to reach out um, uh, to have business mentors come in on the Monday nights. Mm. So if the Monday night class Build is an ecosystem eight, around it. Yeah. Um, the first hour is on a substantive topic. So I'd invite folks in to talk about accounting, have an expert yeah. come in and talk about social media. Yeah getting your story out. Yeah. And then the second half of the class, they meet with their student lawyer and they also meet with an outside business mentor. And there isn't a single CEO or a single successful entrepreneur that I've asked who hasn't come in more than once. I love um, that about Boston. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I've also um, great. incorporated um, students into the teaching. So it's a little bit like the okay. medical school concept, right? Um, Watch one, do one, teach one. Like the full-time and students so, at yeah, yeah, so so they're all typically yeah. second or third year law students. Right. And so they they get to know That's great. They get to know the entrepreneurs really well. Mm-hmm. And they get to know the outside business person really well. So from a law school point of view, I'm helping people mm-hmm. become, I hope, yeah. great, more thoughtful, more empathetic business lawyers. Um, William and Mary would be proud. And so <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And um and you're also uh, some of the business mentors that I've seen have been changed. So I like to think of um, uh, I wouldn't never call it Project Remade because Stanford has that, yeah. and I so respect it. Yeah. But I love the concept because yeah. it works on so many levels. So the students are remade because they're thinking about themselves in a different way and how to counsel an entrepreneur and how it's not just the forms that I put in front of them. It's it's the context for the forms. And if you can't speak that language, you really can't be an effective lawyer. For the entrepreneurs, they get to think about themselves in a different way. Even if they don't launch the business, mm. they have spent 10 weeks thinking about things that are positive. Um, and they've been um, re- interacting with people um, about their business idea. So just the lift of spending your time thinking about, as I would say, something that you want to do full time is pretty important. And for the outside people who come in, the outside business mentors, they have been remade. Mm. They will never sit through a conversation where someone says, ah, we ought to just throw away the key. Mm. 
my hope and my expectation uh, is that they'll say, actually, no, I don't agree with that. I've actually met a bunch of returning citizens, and yeah. I don't believe that at all. Yeah. So it remakes yeah. everybody involved uh, in the course, and that's why it's so powerful, and that's why my hope is to not only expand the class, but to also expand what we do with it. And so what the next steps uh, will be with it, I'm, I'm going to take this upcoming semester off so I can start to think about that. Mm -hmm. How do we connect this to like-minded people who want to help them, whether that's the Venture Capital Cafe yeah, Foundation, whether that's another university, whether that's um, the SBA, which is now focused on this. You have some... Um, some legislation at the federal level that's mm -hmm. now going through suggesting that the SBA and SCORE, Service Corps Retired Executives, gets more involved in this. So how do we take what we've learned mm -hmm. and bolt that on so that it's part of a broader effort mm -hmm. to help people return to their communities? Because for a lot of these entrepreneurs, the deck is really stacked against them. Yeah, We... We have a lot of challenges in this country around criminal justice. It's time for a thorough re-examination. I have learned just by listening that it isn't just about um, being there, of course, which is quite devastating for people being in prison, but it's what comes after and what comes next. So for a lot of these folks, um, having a criminal record, and now some it's almost a third of Americans have some interaction with the criminal justice system, um, they get out and they continue to suffer from these collateral consequences. So whether it's being denied a job in Massachusetts, for example, you can't be an auctioneer or an embalmer, a sheet metal worker. So this isn't just Massachusetts. Really? With the criminal um, these are laws that have been on the books for a while. Yeah. There are a lot of reasons for them. In Alabama, you can't be a dog therapy handler without... Having, you can't be an interior designer in Wisconsin. So some of these consequences last forever. Is it Alabama, the state where repeat offenders, is it three, maybe the third time they just get thrown in life, prison think, for life? It's Alabama or like Mississippi. I think that just there are a number. NPR case about it. Huh? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. There's nonviolent crimes, but if you three strikes, you're, I think every state throw away is, the key. Yeah, I think every state is reevaluating it yeah. uh, in, in a lot of ways. I don't know specifically about Alabama, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of states where uh, private prisons have emerged uh, uh, as, as sort of the new Jim Crow. Yeah. There's a great book. Um, Bauer, I think is the last name of the author, called American Prison, that I'd certainly recommend people read. It's really uh, critical uh, that we get this right. So it, it's not just um, uh, the, the challenges people face in finding a traditional job when they get out, but it's, uh, it's housing, it's yeah. paying off fines. There's something called the Financial Justice Project in San Francisco where they're trying to figure out how the, the impact on people for parking fees and bail, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So there's a whole set of circumstances, like a black cloud that travels with folks yeah. uh, after they've served their sentence. Mm -hmm. So that's critical about sort of Project Entrepreneur. Yeah. Folks have been, they have paid their dues. They've done exactly what they've been told. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you're going to do. Yeah. Here's your penalty. Yeah. Even after you've paid that penalty, even after you've come you're out. You're penalized. For life. Yeah. So 
that needs to be changed yeah. because we're defined as a society how we welcome people back. So this is making me think of some interesting models myself. I'd be curious the data on the, and it's only been a couple of semesters on where folks are from Project Entrepreneur. My assumption might be they may be from some communities that maybe have populations that are perhaps underserved from an innovation community standpoint. And so to your point about like state or federal funding that may be able to support folks through this program to actually go in, back to their communities and then be, and then actually leverage what they've learned to build and create programs for young people in those communities to also like take a very proactive approach to lifting up um, the communities that maybe at one point let them down. And so they went down a path that led them to create a crime that put them in prison. Uh, I don't know if that thought no, makes it, sense. But it makes absolute yeah. sense. Um, and you know, I'll follow up with you after yeah. this, even after yeah. this podcast, because I think that um, helping people get, let's face it, most of the folks who are getting out when they, when they come out, uh, they're going back to their community. That's their family. Yeah. And so what you want to do is give them hope that there can be change for them and for their entire family. Mm -hmm. We've only had two classes so far. Mm -hmm. And so I am tracking folks pretty carefully okay. uh, as best I can. Yeah. But the best thing you can do is um, right now, until I have something more formalized, yeah. is, to, uh, is to point them in the right direction for other services. Sure. I could certainly envision a situation where you create uh, something called the Second Chance Ventures Fund or something. Yeah. A small nonprofit that basically yeah. pays for yeah. food truck permits sure. or um, or licensing fees or something to help people get on. And there's also that important piece of mentorship. So I'm also thinking about, yep. this is what I'll be thinking in my yep. off semester, about uh, engaging people in a more structured way. Maybe there's a project entrepreneur or volunteer core. Yeah. Because that 90 days after they finish the course. Yeah. How do you take that idea for a cool nonprofit or yeah. a restaurant or yeah. a sober house yeah. and yeah. make it more real? Right. In, in some ways, I, I could see hopefully this when this podcast goes out, it will be hopefully a bit of a magnet to some like minds. But a couple that come to mind that have been on the podcast, for example, that just would benefit from continuing to uh, connect with like minds doing sort of social impact programs. One is in Lawrence. It's called Tech for Hood. And cool. Roman Hakez, it was it, that he was actually, I got re reached out to by Snap Inc. And I thought it was spam at first. I was like, why is Snapchat reaching out for Boston Speaks Up? And they have an um, official Snap lens creator, wow. Roman Hakez. He's a he's um, from the Dominican Republic, spent yeah. his first 17 years, immigrated here to New, uh, New York, eventually made his way to Methuen, which is this weird connection we have because that's where I grew up. And, um, and my wife grew up in Lawrence, going to Lawrence Public Library, that's where she interacted with the computer growing up. And so Roman has a group of friends that have created Tech for Hood nonprofit where they're just all volunteers teaching young people in um, Lawrence and adjacent areas uh, commute, computer skills. And and which is which is fantastic. And then you have a program like Resilient Coders yeah. with David Del Mar Santias. Yeah. We've interviewed him on the podcast. Dave's fantastic. Yeah. And so I, I would love um, and this is something I'm happily participating in, certainly can help be a dot connector and a facilitator, maybe a, a bit of a, an event organizer, but connecting those folks like Roman and David. 
I still like they still need to connect more meaningfully and purposefully, maybe through a more a proper construct or umbrella that kind of connects them all. But what I keep finding a year plus back in Boston is just these beautiful pockets of individuals that are donating their time. And it seems to me that um, collectively um, and interconnected, they all can lift up even more. Yeah. So maybe we pull together some sort of um, connecting forum. Yeah. Uh, Because there's a lot going on. Uh, and I think this particular challenge, societal challenge, is, is gaining a lot more interest. Uh, you've got uh, certainly in the tech, tech community, Marcus uh, Bullock with FlickShop has created an amazing company. He's been in the White House a bunch of times. Um, you've got uh, Professor uh, uh, Hopwood at uh, Georgetown Law, who actually has a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got... Um, Dwayne Betts, who's now a best-selling author, having um, uh, just gotten out of prison, he was the focus of a Boston Magazine article, and you've got lots of great opportunities to to showcase folks who have been better than the circumstances they found him in as a young person, and, mm-hmm. and I think are really just great um, great examples of why people shouldn't be defined by something. Uh, that they did 10 or 20 years ago. You said it really well in the pre-podcast Q&A. You said people are better than the worst thing they've ever done. No question. And that's a beautiful way to look at it and try to find it. If anyone wants to argue with that, like they're crazy. I mean, it's so true. It's part of the human condition. Yeah. We are, we're all making yeah. mistakes. So we shouldn't be judged by the worst thing we've ever done because we're much better than that. We are indeed. <laughs> and, and so many of us have had the privilege of growing up um, – uh, in circumstances, in homes, in communities where there was greater support mm-hmm. uh, and maybe greater direction. Mm-hmm. And so that ties in a bit to some of the work that I care about at American Student Assistance, uh, yeah. which you'd asked me about. That yeah, let's it. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, ASA has been around for 60 plus years. It's a national nonprofit, always been in the education space. And their new CEO, Gene Eddy, is a dynamo um, and an incredible visionary. And so ASA is really focused now on helping middle schoolers understand mm-hmm. who they are, what their options are, and how to make better, more thoughtful choices, not just about college, but career. Yeah. And so I'm excited about some of the things. That just are, think about life they're going on there. earlier on. Yeah, I like, think so. As yeah. hard as it is, Zach, yeah. um, for someone to just say, hey, you're kind of good at drawing. Yeah. You're really kind of good at telling stories. You're really good with your hands. Yeah. And helping somebody understand their worth instead of just approaching this cookie cutter approach where everybody has to go mm. to this kind of a trajectory and to yeah. these kind of, this kind of a school pattern to be successful. Right. So a bit skill identification and a bit sort of, um, confidence in, in spot, like a bit instilling confidence in maybe yeah. seeing through yeah, that, that, that unique, that skill is, or that skill is from, unique to you. Yeah. It comes from teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just sponsored, um, with the Commonwealth 1.8 million in grants and innovation pathways to, uh, help teachers, um, uh, help kids understand that there's more than one way of thinking about themselves yeah. and get them to internships so they can start thinking. The more that we can, um, help people help kids make good choices yeah the less likely i'm going to see them at project entrepreneur totally i think and i'm a big believer in entrepreneurialism of course yeah. uh and and the data shows it yeah we release six hundred thousand people from prison every year more than a year later half of them still haven't found a job yeah um and so if we can find a way to give people 
an opportunity. In there is great opportunity. That's yeah. the word. Opportunity. Yeah. Like that's up. That's a big opportunity gap. And the more innovation innovators from ment, you know, mentors, several time serial entrepreneurs, lawyers, marketers come together and and execute against frameworks against that opportunity. Yeah. Like that's a valuable workforce for America. Yeah, that we should lean into and support and and help support you know help support opportunity. Yeah, totally critical. Yeah. It's yeah. the it's the next generation. Yeah, and so if we can get them yeah. connected to um, ideas, if we can connect them to um, their own skill sets, they really again yeah. as ASA says so well, really help kids understand who they are and know what their options are. Um, and we're doing it through a variety of different ways, sort of uh, funding innovation and thinking about advocacy um, and also perhaps making investments in yeah. the future. Because that's what it is. We yeah. talk a lot about infrastructure. Um, human infrastructure is probably the most important thing mm-hmm. in Boston and, and, and in all of our communities. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm excited about that as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what you're excited about for 2020. And this can include maybe trends you're seeing, the types of um, entrepreneurs that you've been speaking with and begin, you know, maybe maybe you've been working with for a while or some new types of um, perhaps unique to the times entrepreneurs that you're helping. Yeah, I, I noticed what just quick side tangent on this. My two of my really good friends, they're lawyers down in D.C. And one works for the Department of Justice and perhaps has one of the, the coolest jobs of anyone I know, um, just doing God's work around the world. And my buddy, he works for um, for Finnegan and um who continues to have um ip attorneys get poached from finnegan to move up yeah. to boston yeah right to help the increasing number of companies that need um in-house legal counsel yeah. you know if they if they go that route um which probably speaks to good times for um uh Gennari aronson what are the trends you're seeing just in general like and around um and it can be related to um, IP and patent needs, uh, but just generally speaking, where is the puck going in Boston, and how are things different from how they've historically maybe been perceived? Like Boston as an innovation community, can you kind of shed some sure. insight based on your perspective? Sure. Um, I see, uh, I I see the future in it continues to be an in innovation. Um, we don't do any life science work, but I know that that is um, going to continue to be an area of growth in New England. I think in um, in Boston, um, you're going to continue to see people focus on how do we help people live longer, better, stronger lives. For tech lawyers like myself, uh, we are going to continue to see things in the area of artificial intelligence and innovation and the future of work. There's a lot going on in fintech, uh, and there's a lot going on with consumer interests. I do think we, we see a lot out here, mm-hmm. in part because so many of our clients um, aren't necessarily venture-backed. Uh, many of them are angel-backed, mm-hmm. where they're getting backed by people who have a warm feeling about the idea and, mm-hmm. the, uh, and the entrepreneur. So I think you're going to continue to see AI applications um, because AI is going to thread its way into everything. Yeah. It's good manufacturing, consumer services, advertising. Yeah. Uh, and the folks at MIT are doing a, a terrific job. I just read a, uh, just finished a book called Girl Decoded uh, by one of the pioneers uh, at MIT. And um, 
she's uh, book won't be out till April, but I, I get uh, a number of books because I uh, I write an occasional book column for uh, the Boston Business Journal, uh, really focused on business books and trying to um, get people to think through um, uh, what the trends are. Yeah, I, I think we're going to continue to see innovation. I think we're going to continue to see investment in uh, in industries that will help people do their jobs better. I'm not a huge believer uh, in the apocalyptic notion that um, AI will eliminate every possible job. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I just don't buy it. I do think that you're going to see more and more AI augmentation and mm-hmm. uh, helping people do their jobs better, faster, easier, more efficient. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's what I see mm-hmm. going forward. Um, but I'll be thinking about these kind of trends. I'll be interested, and I'll take all kinds of advice around. What are the things that we should think about for authors and innovators, yeah. uh, which we do every October, which yeah. is really this community-based business ideas festival, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, last year, we focused on uh, building the 21st century company. The year before that was innovation in the future of work. And the year before that was just doing better faster. So mm-hmm. I get those kind of ideas by listening. Mm-hmm. And what's been fun about that is the answer to your very good and direct question um, isn't always obvious to me until I start thinking about what are people writing about? What mm-hmm. are people thinking about mm-hmm. and what's going to matter? What, what matters to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really, that's really uh, something I look forward to um, every year. So I think I, I would give you that answer, but I'd say it's always going to be, um, I think uh, augmented by whatever we do in the fall, and I don't know yet. I'm yeah. still, I'm still assessing. Yeah. I'm getting all kinds of cool, interesting yeah. new books to to think about. Wonderful. So for for folks that are listening, um, tell, like share a bit of the background on authors and innovators, oh, sure. and perhaps like yeah. ways they can share and submit ideas and potentially collaborate or attend. The, oh, well, that's the great. Event. Yeah, yeah. No, th- thank you for yeah. mentioning it. It's um, authors and innovators is a um, it's a community-based event. It is free. And it's usually, we held it at UMass uh, Mount Ida. Uh, this year, we okay. held it at the Wellesley, Wellesley College for the last couple of years. We ran out of space. That's why one of the reasons we moved it. And it usually involves um, uh, both innovators and authors. So we'll have nine or 10 authors of business books, typically local. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and local, I mean Northeast. So we'll have people come sure. up from New York. Cool. Um, if they've written a thoughtful, interesting book yeah. and frankly, they want to sell books, we'll have yeah. an independent bookseller on hand and they, um, they sell the books. Mm-hmm. And then we have innovators. We have about somewhere between 10 and 12 innovators who are typically they'll fit the theme, um, uh, whatever the theme is that year. And they come and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's usually we start on a Thursday afternoon. Last year we had Brad Feld come out from, uh, Colorado, yeah. um, who is just wonderful. He's such a thoughtful, uh, terrific author and thinker. Yeah. So he came and talked about his cool. books and then he stayed for the whole three panels of presentations on Friday morning. So I would say to anybody listening, if you are an author or an innovator and you want to tell us about something that you're really jazzed about, uh, or you've got this great new book coming out and you really want people to know about it, mm-hmm. um, then they should definitely, Drop me a line, frankly, if they want to talk about that or Project Entrepreneur at 
Janari at uh, bc.edu. They can just reach out to my faculty email, which Great. has less spam protection. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and I'll generally uh, and I'll generally get it, and I respond to everybody. But I I think um, I would love it if we had a few more folks. Boston O came, and they were one of our innovators and yeah. collaborators, collaborators, and talked a bit about um, their work uh, to in the space. But it's yeah. meant to it's it's meant to connect uh, our clients, our community. To as I said, those those three things that help people become successful entrepreneurs, connecting them to dollars, um, uh, to people, and to ideas. That's the lifeblood of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so, if we can find more venues for that, yeah. whether that's project entrepreneur, whether yeah. that's authors innovators, whether that's them reading about a book that I happen to read and review in the in the Boston Business Journal, that's all good. Yeah, that's all good. I would like to propose a subject matter for this. For I'm all ears. What do you got? So, socioeconomic impact, like social change huh. ideas. Like it would be interesting to, I, I wonder the the struggle may be how many people are putting out books in 2020 that are like innovation focused books, but on like social impact. But as far as like social impact entrepreneurs mentioned, Resilient Coders, Tech for Hood. You got folks like Josh Trotswine. You know Josh? Fresh Truck. Retrofitted old school buses cool. turned rolling cool farmer's idea. market to underserved communities that don't have access to fresh produce. There's like so many. And he's now a consulting with Sweetgreen on innovative models in California and all over. Like you have social impact entrepreneurs in Boston. That oh, and are, Babson. That are just Rachel yeah. Greenberg and her group. Yeah, they're like, yeah. We're, uh -huh. Boston is yeah. writing several scripts and creating many frameworks that the world that can help the entire world. I think it's a really um, changing the world one idea at a time. Maybe that's our theme. Yeah. All right. Yeah. One of the, throw in the mix. Yeah. Uh, Boston hiding in plain sight. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It sounds Everyone, like we're going to have to collaborate on this. We may. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should. I'm going to have to get on your, I've already finished uh, a bunch of books already for, um, I figure if people are kind enough to send them to me. I'm going to read them. Um, yeah. but there's a, there's a lot of great topics. And yeah. what's interesting is even if the book isn't on that topic specifically, yeah. there are always pieces of it. Yeah. that you can pull into the particular topic that will be useful. We're also scheduled. We're also busy. Yeah. The last thing an entrepreneur wants to see is, oh, goodness, uh, yeah. five other events I can go to. Yeah. The idea behind Authors and Innovators is that we know you're busy. Mm -hmm. This is one that will be useful for you. Mm -hmm. I promise. Mm -hmm. And you'll get to meet the author and you'll get to uh, get a book signed. You'll get to engage with other people because the audience tends to be like-minded people mm -hmm. who are saying of all the things I could be doing right now, yeah. family, business, whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to feed my head. Yeah. This is important to me. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to do that. And I think being more present, being more intentional is, uh, is probably the most important thing that people could do in 2020. Yeah. Um, and I have some different, like, you mentioned Babson, like Endicott up in my neck of the woods. I'm sure. up in Beverly now. Like they're, they have the Angle Center for Entrepreneurship where I've been doing some guest lecturing. Deirdre Sartorelli, I had her on the podcast. She runs the Angle Center. Um, these are the, you know, they're very, you know, I know Endicott's very interested in participating in, um, in all sorts of um, sort of like innovation community um, grassroots sort of bottom up oriented initiatives. So it's just, 
and I imagine everyone is. So it's really just um, it's Abiding just the platform. It's just right? a matter of it, it, give them the opportunity. A bit of a, a bit of a, a yeah. some sort of a light sort of actual, you know, platform interface website that people actually could interact through a platform could be interesting too. Uh, obviously, you met. So the last question I always ask on the pre podcast questionnaire is sort of what's the biggest. Um, thing impacting the world that, that you'd like to see solved. Interestingly enough, Deirdre Sartorelli, who I just mentioned from Endicott, she said presence and had a beautiful tangent yeah. about how people need yeah. more presence. So it's cool you, that you said that as well. But but in your answer there and what we've discussed a lot here, and I'd love for you just to, you know, just kind of expand a, a bit more on, on any other unique um, potential solutions that you, that you think are out there to this. But you mentioned uh, sort of... So, so um, in, in, inequality, sort of like, right. and talk about inequality, income inequality, and any optimistic sort of things that we haven't discussed that that people should know about. And then also, um, are there any, it's, it, you're very uniquely suited to not just ideate, but actually put together complicated models to help address income yeah. inequality. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. I, I do think income inequality is one of the, it, it is, uh, it is as important as so many others. And I, it's a problem that has been a stubborn one for many years. Uh, it was part of the reason that the war of poverty was created. Right. Um, and it's something, and we talked about that we communicated about this pre podcast that uh, even Martin Luther King was concerned about as we're approaching January and, more thoughts about this. He consistently framed inequality um, and social justice in an economic framework. Yeah. He consistently said, um, and part of the reason he was in Memphis on that fateful day was the sanitation worker strike. I think that one of the things I would really like people to think more about is how you can solve, how we can all solve for income inequality. And that's not only about the policies we support and the politicians we vote for. I think we have a great opportunity to do it with, uh, with our own time and energy. And that's why I get so excited about things like Project Entrepreneur. If you can create or help somebody create, show them a path to establishing one dry cleaner, one barbershop, one laundromat in their community, it doesn't just change their lives. It changes the lives of all of the people around them, mm -hmm. for their family, for the people who are going to work there. So I do think that this has, change has to come one person at a time. Yeah. And you can't do it all, but we all have this obligation to sort of brighten our corner. Yeah. I guess that's the way Eleanor Roosevelt sort of came up with it from, yeah. an, old, from an old church hymn. Um, you have to brighten your corner. And so there are uh, certainly ways that all of us can donate um, and think and act and vote. And that's important. Um, but as I often tell my students, you know, likes won't save the world. Yep. So if you want to do something more than just virtue signal, yeah. you should definitely do that. So if that's, if that's on everybody's list of resolutions, both for 2020, but for any time, what is it that I can do? And a big part of it is being present for somebody else. A big part of it is helping mentor somebody else. Um, the most important thing that somebody can do when they feel down and out, depressed, stuck in a rut, is help somebody else. 
It's the most important thing they can do. And the more opportunities and venues and avenues we have for that, the better off we're all going to be. And I think income inequality gets solved certainly at a policy level, but for a substantial group of citizens, you know, we have now one third of people in the U.S. with some sort of criminal record. Um, with that kind of record, you've got to help people to be able to help themselves. Yeah. And so if they're going to be turned away by traditional employers, then let's figure out a way to help these people think about themselves in a different way mm -hmm. and maybe creating, create some of these businesses that are the engine of economic growth in the U.S. and certainly in Massachusetts. So that probably um, uh, a micro answer to your broad macro yeah, question, yeah. but I think it's, um, it's certainly one way to, uh, to think about it. We all need to be, and I totally agree with her, more present, more intentional, find an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, all it takes is uh, to show up, to listen, and to care, mm -hmm. certainly at, um, for Project Entrepreneur. But um, we, gotta, we all have to try to brighten our corner. Yeah. Larry, this has been great. I'm really grateful for the time that you spent with Thank me you, today. Thank you, Zach. This was fun. Looking forward to sharing this with the community. Looking forward to brightening our corner together. Yeah, so same I'll here. To, I'll have to continue the conversation offline. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah. We'll, we'll cheer and enjoy, uh, you know, have a safe, happy new year celebration and do the same. this Me podcast too. will come out our first podcast to 2020. And I'm really excited that we'll get to share it with the community. So thank, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Cheers, Boston.